I think it might even be in the language of the blurb about the production, asking the question, what are the ancients telling us? That we do have stories that are being told to us through these media, and they do tell us about these shifts in worldview or paradigm, no less, that, that a culture was able to navigate those shifts continuously and, and are here today to show us and tell us about it as well. Yep. Talk to us in a bit more detail about what that was and how we can see ourselves in it. Yeah, so um, as you're talking, actually, I'm thinking, and I'm not a religious person, but I have read the Bible uh, uh, a few times, actually, and uh, in it, Jesus says, the meek will inherit the earth, which, again, has always been pretty nebulous mm. to me, but I think I understand it now. In the last 11,600 years, there's been huge climactic upheaval, and every civilization that's ever been birthed has died. We're watching it in front of our eyes yeah. now with the West, and we know that. And all through that, the Aboriginal people of Australia, the, the Indigenous cultures in all around the world, uh, have survived. And they have survived not because they built, you know, multi-storey buildings or built a rocket ship that took them uh, into outer space. They survived because they had an intimate knowledge with their country. They knew where the water was. And they've always known about that through ice ages and 100-year droughts. And if you know your estate, you know where the water is, then you will survive anything. And that is the deep message through this film, that if we don't have a reverence of nature and we don't understand where all that is, then we're doomed to repeat what's been going on with every civilization. You're seeing in that, in that indigenous culture that there was a drift away from that themselves. Yep, so uh, about 17 and a half thousand years ago, we stopped painting animals, plants and serpents, which we had been doing for 40,000 years before that in a very feminine law. Uh, and we know that through the deep stories of Manzu and Jilnya. Uh, and those stories start to change at about 17 and a half thousand years and they start painting half human, half animal figures in that transition period until eventually they start painting full human beings. And the, the paintings are beautiful, absolutely oh, beautiful. Yeah. But all they paint is humans. They paint very few plants, very few animals, and they no longer paint the creation serpent. And those images last for a few thousand years, science believes. They're just The, the numbers are coming through with the dates now. And then eventually those beautiful images that we associate with the Goyon start to de-evolve is the word that the scientists use into stick figures with weapons. It's the first time that we see weapons. This is only happening in Australia, mind you. In the rest of the world, they're still only painting plants, animals and serpents. So the first human paintings by humans were done in this country with motion, with perspective. Incredible. Oh, yeah. And they then de-evolve into these stick figures uh, weapons and war and then in the deep stories there's the 1000 year war and then eventually humanity is punished and I'm sure this will resonate with your listeners as well uh, the people were punished for leaving the law with a great flood mm. uh, and uh, if that coincides with the Younger Dryas which is what's being suggested um, then the younger dryas and the inundations and sea level rises uh, decimate human populations in the northern hemisphere and smash them in the southern hemisphere. But here in the Kimberley, that anthropomorphic art, that human art, art 
finishes directly at the Younger Dryas 12,800 years ago when all of that happened, which is completely fascinating. And then they never went back to painting humans ever again. In uh, Anatolia, um, Turkey now, that's when it starts at the Younger Dryas. They start painting humans. Here they finish. Wow. So over there they start painting humans. Agriculture starts in the same area. Yeah. Uh, patriarchal gods are in, the, in the image of humans. Yes. Uh, start to form here they eventually start going back to painting animals plants and the rainbow serpents and that in anatolia that culture then spreads that agricultural uh, spreads it spreads through crete and king minos where he puts the uh, the minotaur in the labyrinth and all of those deep stories and eventually those animals are anthropomorphized the gods are anthropomorphized into a man uh, eventually it turns into Yahweh God Christianity and, and all of these systems and civilization that we understand now that only starts 11,600 years ago here they they understood the punishment of the flood they learnt from it they went back to nature and they enjoyed that until 4,200 years ago and then something else happens 4,200 years ago. They still retain those old stories. They're always kept. But there's also another wave of masculinity also comes in, which you see in the art change here and everything else. But uh, essentially, they go back to animism here and they stay in animism. Yeah. And it's the last place in the world that never accepted agriculture. So the oldest stories in the world, which were practiced by all people before, they only stayed here and everywhere else took to agriculture, which is fascinating. Oh, it's fascinating. And then we, of course, that then arrives here and, and here we 1788, are. 1788, it comes in with Terranalius and uh, mm. agriculture spreads and the pastors become pastoralists. Yes. They steal the uh, sacred springs that were revered by the Aboriginal people because if you knew your maps where your springs were you could survive as I said before through ice ages and a hundred year droughts the pastoralists take those springs they slaughter the Aboriginal people and we are we are watching the consequences of it now there is still a deep tie to those stories and those springs and that law which the Aboriginal people innately know they cannot leave because it has, it has allowed them to survive when civilizations fall, but it hangs by a thread, by, by an arrogant civilization who has no understanding or concept of what that society is trying to tell them. Because that society is trying to tell us and invite us in. Which is what Stories in Stone is, is a translation to a Western mind, which I don't think has been done that well. Uh, that's what Stories in Stone's intention is, is to translate to a Western mind what the indigenous, and it's not just Australian indigenous, indigenous cultures, it's the global indigenous cultures, what they are trying to tell us. Yeah. And I think of the Songlines exhibition and book two, and Margot's obviously involved in this, and Lynn, as you said, those translations seem to be picking up pace as well. And I guess I'm moved, Mark, with the thinking that there's the possibility that, okay, as a human project, we know we've navigated these changes in mind and in the physical realities that we've mapped that to. 
so we can do it again if we can listen and accept the invitation and uh, and assume you know humility which um, we're not very good at no that's it but there's the practice what is the potential for this consciousness shift the sort of pinnacle question in a way where are we situated in that realm of possibility is there a sense that something's emerging here that stories in stone hopefully will play another pivotal part in and by the way listeners this is this is part of your broom soundtrack so i'm not going to cut it out that's actually the result of our win at james price point as a result of winning they've decided to float uh, one of the one of the gas reservoirs out there and so that helicopter is taking over 20 people over to the platform and I think they leave now three or four times a week where they ferry people back and forth to the oil and gas platform so that's what that one is. Well it's another bloody good example isn't it that one spot fire I mean significant effort mm. in, in putting it out mm. but there it is bobbling away over there and, uh, yeah. and, and you know when I listen to you talk about that I and I've been involved in my own, so I, I know yeah. I know the work. Yeah, yeah. And then you do recover for a couple of years and a whole bunch of other stuff rises up in the meantime. So it does emphasise the point where this conversation's gone, obviously, is to get to the root of the cultural stories. So how are you reading this emergent potential shift in consciousness or paradigm? Where are we? What, what possibility do you I'm kinda, believe in? I'm kind of torn. Uh... I want to believe that there is going to be a conscious shift or a consciousness shift and that, you know, that humanity will become enlightened and and, and we will realise that every civilization that's ever been born, and I'm sure that there's been other civilizations through the universe, uh, get to this point. They get to this crucial point especially if you're involved in technology, which I assume is what drives uh, yeah. uh, civilizations. Yep. And so if you've got all of your faith in technology and everything else, then it, it's inevitable that you're going to come to this point. And there's two ways you can go. You can go business as usual. And I'm not saying anything new here. <laughs> you, you, you can go business as usual and you'll destroy yourself, which is what civilizations have done. Or you realize that... Uh, nature, that you have to have a, a relationship with nature, you have to revere nature, and if you revere nature, then everything changes. No longer is technology so important. In fact, technology is the, is the, uh, the antithesis of, um, of, of nature. The moment that you start to plant seeds in a clear land, plant seeds in a row, is the moment that you leave a relationship with nature. The moment that you then go and build a tractor to do that and everything else, you leave it even more. And you keep leaving it. And that's what we do. That's what we've done. We have severed our relationship with nature. We know that we are... Oh, that's a nice... (laughs) (laughs) Over your left shoulder. (laughs) Sacred ibis. Um, In flight. We know that nature is important. We can feel it intrinsically, but we we haven't grasped the understanding that we actually not only uh, have to like it or love it, we actually have to have a relationship with it. And when you have a relationship with it, then it's a vastly different society. To answer your question, how do I, where do I think it's going to go? 
history and the rock art history tells me that it doesn't go well. It tells me we that need we, the flood. It, history tells us that cataclysm is what changes human society. Uh, it doesn't change by itself. That was really hard for me to grasp for many years, but I now understand it and I'm at peace with it. I hope I'm wrong. Mm. I really hope I'm wrong. And even then, when we get the flood, like for something new and let's say reconnected with the natural world to have reassumed its place i don't know it says something about the seeds that are planted you know the metaphoric seeds that are planted now anyway probably hey that there's no ultimate black and white no ultimate death and life like before the cataclysm it's the seeds that you plant now that are going to hold you in the best stead well if that's, that's the way it goes that's so this goes full circle around, around to what we've been talking about with Malcolm and Kimberley World Heritage and everything else. What I've come to realise is that the Kimberley is the last great cultural landscape on the planet with a chronology of art that goes back at least 70,000 years. And if you know how to read that rock art, it tells you how to survive. Most people do not know how to read it and will not be able to, to survive. But I believe that this place and the Pilbara, there's plenty of it all around Australia, that these places are the universities in helping you to survive after a cataclysm. So I know it's really hard to imagine our civilization collapsing. I know it's really hard to, uh, to, to visualize not being able to turn a tap on and water coming out. But that's what happens with a cataclysm. 4,200 years ago, there was a 100-year drought called the 4.2ka event, which destroyed every civilization from the old kingdom of Egypt to Angkor Wat. 100 years of drought, all of their water dried up. The, the societies were no longer able to function. It caused a diaspora and death, but it caused a diaspora of the first climate refugees, which spread to Australia and have a genetic signature here in Australia. Um, we know that civilizations collapse. So if our civilization collapsed, which we cannot get our heads around. It's part of the task, isn't it? To just be able to imagine that. To just be able to imagine what that, what that would be like. And it's happened many times before. And then what would you do if that happened? Yeah. And most people would not have a clue. But an Aboriginal person would know straight away that if they, if they didn't know their map... Uh, their map wasn't too far away and they would go and relearn their map of their estate and they would find out where all of those water points are and they would go back to a subsistence that has allowed humanity to flourish on and off because there has been some downtimes, but for 300,000 years. And that belief system in those springs and those maps and serpents and everything else I would suggest is 300,000 years old and probably doesn't come from modern human beings. It probably comes from Neanderthals or other hominid yeah. species. Which that, we've also cast in completely inappropriate sort of primitive yeah. light. Yeah, yeah. And, and the reason why those, those beings were able to survive for such a long time is because they had such an intimate knowledge of their country and their estate and how to, how to survive. We have no idea. So the World Heritage effort then that this hopefully will help spur along here who holds that who nurtures that is it is it something that you sort of it's just in the back pocket for the minute probably requiring a change of government 
is that sort of the view? Yeah, uh, well, no, not necessarily. There are certainly some uh, sympathetic people inside the conservative movement, um, not so much on a state level, but in the feds. Um, Ken Wyatt uh, is talking um, world heritage in his national statement that he's crafting. I know that there's a few other conservatives that are interested. So, and often in these bigger visioned campaigns it's often the conservatives that pull these off with national parks and everything else yes so you know uh, it it doesn't matter if they're from labor or liberal or the greens or whoever it's so no there's still conversations going on we have a a movement at the moment it's just a loose uh band of people from musicians to academics and everybody in between called the Kimberley World Heritage Project Quip which uh, has a little website and everything else but yeah it's just sitting on the back burner at the moment until we get stories in stone up which is a huge tool for world heritage because what stories in stone does along with serpent's tale the other film is highlights that cultural landscape and that's what we're after Mm. we're after a cultural landscape listing not an environmental listing so it has to acknowledge you know the country but it has to acknowledge the people and the culture that live on on that country they're 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 intertwined you cannot you can't have one without the other. And I think there's only two cultural landscape listings in Australia. And, you know, truth be known, all of the, all of the, uh, all of the world heritage areas should have a cultural landscape listing, especially Daintree, you know, all yes, of those Yes, well, places. exactly. Because they all have an Indigenous culture attached to it with deep stories. Yeah, that's why we're not just talking about this region. No, no, in, in my dream of dreams, I'd love to see the Kimberley... Uh, get its world heritage and then a flow on into other ones which is being discussed there's certainly um there's some large forces that are talking about those things so yeah. you know it's not just uh, me and, and a few rat bags in the kimberley yeah that's right and when we talk about you know as is often another theme that comes out of certainly my conversations it's the regional approach is yep. part of getting back to the source yep and there it is yeah yeah, yeah. but you spread it it's again you know yeah spread yeah, it. same thing and, and again, they all need to be communicating. Yeah. Um, yeah super like they cool. always did. Like they always did, exactly. Yep. Mate, you mentioned music. Yep. I don't know if you listened to the show with Jeff, the bloke who brought us together from episode 78 with Michelle. At the end of each episode, I get my guests to tell a story about a piece of music that's been significant to them in their lives. The one that springs to mind is my very good mate, Xavier Rudd. He uh, came up and did a trip into... The Kimberley, this is 2009, I think he came up uh, and he went off into the Kimberley. I wasn't with him actually. He went off into the Kimberley for three or four days and it was February, stinking hot. I said, what are you doing, mate? He said, oh, you know, that's what I do. So he took off uh, up near Mornington Station and disappeared into the scrub, came back out looking pretty frazzled uh, about five days later, drove back into Broome. Uh, and he said, I've got a song that's come to me. And I drove him down to Riddell Beach down here in Broome. And he wrote for the first time Spirit Bird in ah. the sand, which I took about 200 photos of. He wrote that song down in the sand. And then the tide came and washed the words away. And then he started, after that, he started coming back and he started playing me the song as it was developing. And it's turned into his second most popular song behind follow the sun spirit bird yeah that's and that was built that was made for the campaign as well which is how we met so as soon as i think of that i think of zave and spirit bird 
got chills everywhere thinking about that. <laughs> that is a metaphor right there for getting back to the source. Totally. And uh, he had a conversation with the red-tailed black cockatoo, and it's the words of the red-tailed black cockatoo, the, the spirit bird. It's a, it's, a, it's a magic song by a magic songman. Yeah, and the way these stories stayed true over tens of thousands of years were being constantly performed. So, yeah, brilliant, yeah, mate. No worries. Thanks a lot. It's been terrific to chat. I enjoyed it, mate. That was award-winning Australian filmmaker Mark Jones. For more on Mark, his work with Malcolm Douglas, the campaigns and his latest films, including The Serpent's Tale and Stories in Stone, see the links in our program details. And thanks to Jeff Powell, my guest on episode 78 and an old primary school mate of Mark's, for the introduction that led to this conversation. The Regeneration is a listener-supported podcast. Please consider becoming a patron of the podcast for as little as a few dollars a month by visiting the website via the show notes, regeneration.com forward slash support. Thanks a lot. And as usual, thanks for also helping by rating, sharing and reviewing the podcast. The music you're hearing is by Owls of the Swamp. My name's Anthony James. Thanks for listening. Thank you.